Work is important. One of the first questions we ask new acquaintances is, what do you do? While it may be common to joke about the tedium of our jobs and to dream of endless leisure time, for many people work's a significant and meaningful part of their lives. Many jobs are worthy in the sense of providing critical services to others, such as bus driving or waste recycling. Other jobs may reflect deeply held commitments, such as environmental work or teaching. Still others may offer the opportunities to follow one's passion, such as science research or the creative arts. The workplace provides opportunities for social connection and friendship. Being in work is a significant social attribute in a society like ours that sees being unemployed as undesirable. Given these features of work, there are many reasons to be concerned about the growing impact of artificial intelligence, or AI, on the future of work. Will AI reduce the drudgery in some jobs while preserving the elements that require human skills and judgment? Or will AI replace whole swathes of jobs with human contributions reduced to tending the machine? What will meaningful work look like in an AI future? Here to help us think through some of these issues is Sarah Bankins. Sarah is a member of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre and an Associate Professor in the Department of Management in the Macquarie Business School. Welcome, Sarah. In your recent paper, co-authored with Paul Formosa, you explore the ways in which the deployment of AI might enhance or diminish employees' experiences of meaningful work. Can you tell us what got you, got you interested in this topic of AI and work in the first place? Well, my research has always been focused on how people experience work and how we can make work a positive and meaningful experience for us. Because it's somewhere that many of us will spend a lot of our time over the course of our lives. And as I started reading more about artificially intelligent technologies and particularly advances in areas like social robotics, I became really interested in thinking about and understanding well, what is it going to mean for us as human workers to work alongside these technologies. And it's a really exciting area to be in because at the moment we're seeing some, some great advances in AI's capabilities, but obviously that has implications for how we think about and how we're going to experience human work. What I liked about your paper was the way you kind of unpacked all these concepts that, that you know, it's easy just to think very quickly about. And so you're interested in meaningful work and AI. So if we start at the beginning, you know, what is meaningful work? Um, can you tell us a bit about the way that you conceptualise those dimensions, what you call the, the dimensions of meaningful work? Yeah, it's a nice place to start because I think it, it can help us to think about our own work and whether we actually find it meaningful. So that's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. <laughs> it, is a, it is a bit scary, it is. And I mean, there are lots of ways that we can define meaningful work, but a lot of models of it basically suggest that there are certain characteristics that will make us experience our work as more meaningful. So one of those characteristics or dimensions is what we call task integrity. And that means being able to complete a whole piece of work. Now, doing work often means doing a range of interconnected tasks. So when we can do a lot of tasks and when we can see a piece of work from beginning to end, we see the finished product, that's task integrity. And the contrast is when we might have to do a single thing or a single task repetitively over and over again. Skill cultivation and use is another dimension. And as that label suggests, it's about whether we can exercise and develop a range of skills and competencies in the work that we do. So that can mean a lot of things. It could mean, you know, the ability to grow and use our research skills, our critical thinking skills, communication, negotiation skills. And so obviously what that does is helps us not just cultivate those skills, but it can help us to cultivate ourselves as human beings more broadly as well. So something like working on a production line in a car factory, there'd be little task integrity because you're just pressing the button that puts the spray paint on the bumper or whatever. Absolutely. And no opportunity to develop skills because 
that's all you do is press that one button. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we kind of call highly fragmented work. So often it's more efficient because you have particular people doing certain singular tasks and they get really good at those tasks and more efficient and faster at them. But as a worker, that can be a really demotivating experience because as you say, we're not, we're not exercising a range of skills. We're not doing a variety of work. We can't see the end product of yeah. our work. And kind of related to that, Another dimension is what we call task significance. So that's where we ask the question, well, can you actually see the wider impact of your work in the world and on other people? So, for example, when I can see that my work benefits my students, when I can see that it's helping them, it's helping expand their careers, I'm experiencing task significance. It's not just about immediately what's the outcome of my work. I can see how I'm helping people and things in the wider world. Now, another dimension is is autonomy, and so that means having some control over what we do and how we do it. So at work, that means the extent of our freedom to determine, for example, how we might approach um, the ways that we do our work. And kind of the converse of that is whether we feel we're excessively micromanaged or monitored at work, and that can curtail our experience of autonomy. Um, in the workplace. We do complain about that in academia, but I think we have a vast amount of autonomy in our work compared to, you know, many, many other occupations. I agree. Yeah, I think we're a nice example of where we do have some uh, quite a good degree of control over how we do our work and where we do our work and those sorts of things. And finally, uh, the last dimension kind of reflects the fact that generally humans, we are social creatures. So work can also generate feelings of what we call belongingness. And that basically means a sense of connection to other people, a sense that we have a joint or a collective purpose that we're working towards. And so generally what these meaningful work models say is that the more you have those different characteristics or dimensions to your work, the more likely you are to experience your work as being meaningful. Okay, thanks. That's super clear. So those sort of dimensions of, of meaningful work, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but can you say a little bit more about why, why meaningful work is ethically important? Yeah, and I think that's where we can start to think of ourselves, not just as workers, but as humans. So I guess in a sentence, we can say ethically, it's it's important because having meaningful work can help us to live a good life, basically. And it does that by giving us opportunities to do things like we were talking about before. So develop our skills, develop our capacities. When we do that, it also gives us the capacity to help others. So to have an impact in, in the broader world. And also, it's ethically important because, again, it can help us to flourish as human beings. So not just as workers, but as human beings. And that can help to promote things like our well-being. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of, I'm thinking about the difference between like paid work and, and unpaid work. But unpaid work can have some of those same benefits and can be meaningful and so on. And we see that with people doing volunteering and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes we find people, perhaps if they don't find their paid work particularly meaningful, they can engage in other forms of work like volunteer work. Or, my, or what we might call side hustles or other things where they can actually perhaps pursue a passion or pursue something that allows them to experience that work as more meaningful. So still have it, but maybe not without the income component. Yeah. Interesting thought experiment for, you know, Australian employed people. Like if, if there was a universal income and if they, if they didn't have to work for pay, what would they do? Yeah, it's a hard question, I think, for some I, of us. I, think, I would struggle to answer that question because we don't really think about <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so now we've established what, constitutes meaningful work and why it's ethically important. So now we bring AI into the picture. What are the potential ways that AI might affect the way that we work? Yeah, and that, I think that's a million-dollar question, Wendy. <laughs> and I, w- I wish I had a, a wonderful <laughs> compact answer for it, but I think when anyone asks what is the impact of AI on work, usually the answer should start with it depends because it's, it's a complex yeah. question and because it depends on so many things. But one important thing 
that it depends on is how that AI is being used, so what it's being uh, deployed to do. So in our research, we looked broadly at uh, three pathways that AI can be deployed and then how that might have implications for how humans experience meaningful work. So the first pathway is probably one we're used to hearing about. It's a replacement pathway. So that's where AI is used to replace some tasks that humans used to do. But workers are still doing some other kinds of work in the workplace somewhere. Now, even as a category in itself, it's kind of broad because as humans, we, the range of tasks that we do can span more simple tasks to more complex tasks. But essentially, replacement is, is one way that AI can affect what we do at work. Now, for example, if a personalised maths learning app is used in a classroom, that can replace some instruction that a human teacher might have done before. But what it also can do is maybe free up that teacher to do other types of work. So they might have more time for lesson planning or individualised feedback to students. So replacement is one thing that, that AI can do. It can replace things that we used to do before. The second path is what's called tending the machine or tending um, the AI. And the use of AI can actually generate new forms of human work that's related to, to managing it in an ongoing way. But this can, this can manifest in a couple of ways. So, for example, it can create interesting and, and new forms of human work. So in the book, Human Plus Machine Reimagining Work in the Age of AI, those authors talk about roles that they call trainer, explainer and sustainer roles. And they say that we were going to need these kinds of roles to manage organisations that are using AI quite extensively. So things like strategically identifying data sets and curating them, uh, helping to create interfaces that make sure that AI is explainable to people and its output is explainable, and helping to reskill and upskill people in organisations so that the use of AI sustains over time. Now, those kinds of roles should be creating interesting and more challenging forms of work for us. But we also know that managing AI can lead to boring and repetitive and monotonous kinds of, of work and tasks. For example, it needs people to source and label data, to feed its models, and we also know that it still needs humans to verify by repeatedly checking the accuracy of its output. So things like how accurately is it recognising images and text and those sorts of things. And that kind of work has already been labelled digital janitor work because of the monotonous, repetitive nature of it. So tending the machine or tending the AI can also create another pathway for how this technology can impact us at work. And the final pathway, uh, and probably the one that I'm most excited about, and I think many people are most excited about, is how AI can amplify or improve human skills and actually help us to do our work better. So an example of that is an AI called Corti, and it's used by emergency call operators in Europe. And it's an AI that's trained on thousands of emergency calls. And so what it can actually do is assist those emergency operators when they receive a call to prompt them to ask certain questions. Um, the technology can evaluate the responses of the callers and then it can help to give those operators um, courses of action. So what, how can you best help that person in distress on that emergency call? So that's an example where the technology can help those operators actually do their jobs better because it's giving them information and insights that they didn't have before and so help them make better decisions. And then obviously across each of these pathways, it's going to have different implications for meaningful work. So for example, that amplifying pathway we just talked about, it can help us develop new skills because we have to figure out how to use this technology well. It can also help us see our tasks as more significant. So maybe for those emergency call operators, they can see how they're actually helping people in distress more and in a better way. And it can also enhance our autonomy because suddenly we have maybe more control over how we do our work because we have better insights to help us do it well. But obviously, if AI is then replacing important tasks that we used to do, that can have the opposite effect and start to 
diminish how we experience meaningful work. That's my non-simple, non-compact <laughs> answer. Yeah, like you say, it's complicated because for, for each of those three pathways, you can see a kind of a benevolent trajectory that will actually make life you know better for humans and you can also see a you know a less uh, a less optimistic one where you know we're, we're tending to, I love that phrase digital janitor yeah yes. just sort of cleaning up the mess yeah. <laughs> cleaning up the AI mess which is it's not great forms of work and, it, and it's interesting because often we focus on that replacement pathway we fear it a lot there's a lot of evidence that shows workers fear that replacement like t- yeah. technology is going to come and take my job but a lot of research is saying look there is that high road that better way that amplifying that complementing way that can actually make our working lives better yeah loss of skills is an area that I'm interested in you kind of you just touched on that very briefly, um, but I've been involved in research looking at uh, the potential of impact of, of AI in breast cancer screening, because now there are AIs that can read mammograms as well as radiologists with potential benefits of faster and more accurate screening. But where does this leave us in terms of skills training, given that the radiologists become good by looking at thousands and thousands of, of, of screens? And so if you then have the AI looking at all the normal ones and saying that's fine, that's fine, and only giving the problematic ones or the challenging ones or the equivocal ones to the radiologists. Where's their baseline knowledge going to come from? Yeah, I think that is a really critical question and one that not as organisations but professional bodies, um, educational institutions and the community more broad I think need to think about quite seriously. So when we talk about skills and technology it kind of starts with that idea that when, you know, when we offload certain tasks onto a technology like AI, it means that they're doing something that we did before. And so it means there's less opportunity for us to use those skills that we were using to do those tasks. And, and that risks de-skilling. So it kind of, again, it kind of depends. So depending on the task, we might think maybe that's okay. Maybe we think it's okay that we maybe don't need those skills anymore. Maybe they're not critical or important or maybe we can develop them in other ways but again there might be other instances where we think no actually it's really critical for us to keep those skills we can't offload all of that onto technology we still need to maintain the ability to for example for radiologists to read scans effectively so really a key question is do we think those skills uh, are important to keep and kind of interrogating why do we think that and, and radiologists is a really interesting example because they're often held up as a profession that is, that is impacted by technology in lots of ways and, and over long periods of time. And because, as you say, AIs now can more accurately screen diagnostic scans, do that more accurately than humans. So, so I guess then the question is, so can and should we fully offload that work to technology? Or, like you suggested, Wendy, is it more likely that maybe radiologists are using the AI as a tool So they're still involved in evaluating um, and looking at scans and medical imaging. So is it is it a matter of the two collaborating kind of together? And healthcare is a really interesting context because it's such a high stakes, high risk, complex kind of domain. And we may think that in that kind of context, we always want humans to have a role in oversighting or evaluating an AI and its output, including for things like. Um, radiologists continuing to have the skills to look at scans and be able to evaluate has the AI done a good job there or do I need to use my own human judgment and skills so it might mean the skill set changes it might mean that the skills change and adapt to what they were before but again it's kind of it's kind of questions that those workers need to be involved in those professional bodies need to be involved in it and users as well because ultimately if we as patients don't um, accept these kinds of technologies being used in autonomous ways, we have to ask the question of, well, is, do we want to do that? Is it, is it a good pathway 
of use for those technologies. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the users because some of the research that's been done on that project was actually having um, uh, dialogue groups with women who underwent who of the, of the age to undergo breast cancer screening and, and seeing asking them what was important and, and what they thought about having an AI and they were they were very happy to have an AI involved if it would make it quicker and also more accessible to women in rural and remote areas, but they didn't want it introduced just for cost cutting and they always wanted a human in the loop. And that was quite interesting because most of the time when you have go for breast cancer screening, you never ever see the radiologist, you don't know who it is. I mean, you you know, you see the radiographer who takes your mammogram, but, but it was interesting, they desperately wanted to keep that unknown person who they would never have any contact with there yeah yeah but I think I mean with that cancer screening there is a way forward I think because all the images are double read by two readers so if one of those is an AI you have the human work um, but you've still got your human in the loop but I think yeah the radiologists are a bit like the canary in the coal mine for healthcare they are and it's interesting I mean research with radiologists shows they're a pretty adaptive group actually and so that you know they're very used to technology coming into their profession and so they are actually quite good at keeping their professional identity but also adapting and going well what other work can we do how you know how do we work alongside these technologies how does it take on things that we're happy for it to take on but how do we work alongside it as as well just to change tack slightly, um, I was very interested in your observation in the paper that, that AI might create differences across workers that sort of undermine solidarity. Can you talk about that a bit more? Like this is something we need to be quite mindful of, um, particularly when there's already evidence that the use of AI, the benefits of it are, are already accruing to high-skilled, high-paid workers and the burdens of its use are generally accruing to lower-paid, low-skilled workers. So. I think it's really important to remember that even though, you know, when an AI is brought into a workplace, even though it's a single technology, workers can actually experience its effects quite differently. So one example of that can be in a call centre. So it's another example of a profession that's often had technology um, use in that workplace. So call centre operators can have their calls recorded, monitored and evaluated by an AI. And that can be an evaluation of things around, you know, the performance of, of that call centre operator around the kind of language and scripts that they use, do they close a sale, turn a voice, all those sorts of things. But for those operators experiencing that every day, that kind of monitoring can become felt as somewhat intrusive or restricting of, of their autonomy. But then by other staff in that call centre, like training coordinators or quality assurance staff, they might actually experience that technology quite differently and they might actually find it quite helpful in their work. Because for them, rather than having to sit and listen to hundreds of hours of recorded calls to evaluate performance, technology can do that now much, much more quickly, almost like a press of a button kind of thing. So for those staff, they might experience that same technology positively because it actually helps them do their jobs better and in a more efficient way and removes what was previously quite a repetitive and monotonous kind of task. Those different kinds of experiences have the potential to create fractures across workers. So it can start to create things like in-groups and out-groups, so people who experience the technology positively and it helps them do their work better, but then people who experience that same technology in negative ways, so where it might diminish control, diminish their autonomy. And what that can start to do is undermine that experience of solidarity, that, you know, that experience of belongingness, that, that feeling like we have a joint purpose or a collective purpose. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can imagine that happening. And, and like you say, your example was really nice about um, being monitored versus having your job made easier with the with the actual callers on the call centre versus their supervisors and trainers. I think that was yeah, that really captured it. 
you've already touched on this, you know, quite a few times in what you've said. But are there, if we take that optimistic view about, you know, AI, what what do you see as the main potential ethical benefits of AI in terms of meaningful work that you haven't already touched on? Yeah, well, I think I think one of the main benefits is is going to come from that amplifying pathway. So that's and that's where a lot of researchers and organisations saying yes, that's this is the power of this technology is when it actually can make our work and lives better. So when it can complement us, when it can do things like give us information and insights that we haven't had before or that we couldn't extract without the use of AI, when it can help us make better decisions, when it helps to improve our skills, when it frees us up from doing that kind of monotonous work that can be quite draining but needs to be done, when it can give us the opportunity to think about what are new and interesting forms of work, human work that we can do, I think that's a really obviously a nice pathway for us to take and really focus on how can we use the technology to generate those kinds of good outcomes, not just for workers, but organisations yeah. too. I saw an interesting snippet in a, in a newsletter this morning about that. It was someone who had used ChatGTP3 to write um, most of his grant application. It took three hours instead of three days. And, you know, there was the usual sort of uproar, you shouldn't be using ChatGTP. And, and he t- twisted it completely and said, why are we spending three days doing something that an AI can do in three hours? Haven't we got better things to do with our time? So I think it's going to be challenging you know working out what are the things what are the things that we can do yeah better and that we can hive off to ai without yeah without losing too much yeah skills particularly like you mentioned before Wendy, how do we make sure that we're not losing skills by offloading stuff to a chat gpt you know writing skills and those sorts of things if we think they're important Yeah. yeah And if we take the sort of the black hat view for a minute, what, where does where do your worst nightmares go with AI <laughs> in the workplace? Yeah, well, there's potentially a few, but I think um, probably one of the clearest and clearest risks and potential harms from AI in the workplace is is when it restricts our autonomy. So generally, we know across lots of different disciplines of research that we like to have control over our lives, and that includes our working life. And so, when AI is used in ways to potentially surveil us. That threatens our sense of control, it threatens our sense of autonomy, and that can lead to a range of poor outcomes, not just for workers, but organisations as well, because when we feel that way, it can create the conditions for us to act in dysfunctional ways. So there was an interesting study recently that looked at how employees behave when their employers use technology to monitor them. And it showed that when employers use monitoring technology to deter what we call employee deviance, so behaviours like social loafing, you know, right through to theft, the experience of that monitoring can actually make people engage in more and higher levels of deviant behaviour. And the reason that is, is because we experience that type of monitoring as a, a loss of agency, as a loss of control. And then what we start to do is we displace responsibility for our actions. So we say, well, it's not my problem that I acted that way. It's, it's someone else's fault that I, that I did that bad thing. And so when AI is used in ways that might shape or nudge our behaviour, particularly in ways when we, we don't know it's doing it or we don't understand how it's doing that, we don't have control over it or we haven't agreed to it, that's a problem and we should be concerned about those ways and we should be asking questions about whether it's appropriate to use the technology to do those sorts of things. I'd like to be on the optimistic side, but I fear that not all of the uses and implementations of AI are going to be benign. I think we, we might have things to worry about. I think, yes, yeah. we will. Yep. And where are you going next with the research? Well, I'm really keen to, despite just talking about some negative things there, I'm, I'm very keen to explore more examples of organisations implementing AI technologies well. And so by well, I mean 
when they're using it in ways that actively support the well-being, not just the productivity, that as well, but the well-being of, of their staff. And so I think when we can highlight those kinds of cases and those kinds of examples, it will give nice template for other organisations to say, oh, look, okay, this is, this is how this place is using that technology. I can probably use that technology in this way too. And so actually actively think about how we can make AI improve people's work and working lives and help them to experience their work as more meaningful. That's lovely to end on that positive note. Thanks, Sarah. That's been really great having you here to talk with us. That's all we've got time for. If you wish to read Sarah's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This is a Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre podcast, and I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers. 